you're familiar with the idiom, you need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, right? Have you heard that? Maybe it was said a little directly when you heard it. You need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, young man, right, or young lady. Um, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And with those words come a sense of discomfort because we know that with that comes likely some incriminating evidence against us. And with that idiom, with that language, there is some degree of conviction that uh, maybe we have not understood ourselves very well. We are guilty of something we have accused someone else of. And so it's a powerful figure of speech. It's, it's, it's a powerful image. It's the imagery of self-examination by means of mirror, right? Well, let me introduce you to the 8th century prophet Hosea, who essentially is saying to the people of God, you need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, people. And so for the next, I'm not sure how many weeks, 12 to 15 weeks, we're going to be using the book of Hosea to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror to see what God's Word says about us and what He says about Himself. And I'll go ahead and tell you the theme. First is bad news. And it's uncomfortable. It's convicting. But it's the badness of the bad news that makes the good news so sweet. And so, Hosea, some of you are already familiar with this 8th century prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. About 750-ish years before the birth of Jesus. So you think about all that. There's a lot that would make studying Hosea uh, difficult and complicated. But I'm going to try to make it uh, simple and filled with application because that is his theme and his purpose of his book. It is a beautiful story of God's love, but it has a lot of ugly truth in it about us that we need to understand. Whether we're young or old, strong language in this book a lot of ugly truths about us, but ultimately it is a beautiful story of God's amazing love. So give your attention. This morning we'll consider the first 11 verses, all from chapter 1, and uh, we will actually revisit these next week as well. Give your attention to God's Word. The Word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, 
because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And after she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, Gomer had another son. And then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of history. That's a lot of context from the 8th century. Imagine the confusion uh, in trying to apply this and understand this, right? Uh, it almost sounds, it almost sounds bipolar, back and forth. I love you. I don't love you. I will love you. I don't love you. I love you. It's just a little bit hard to get our arms around, isn't it? So let's pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning. Lord, that is our prayer. Would you take these words written long ago by your prophet for the good of your people? And would you apply them rightly to us that we might examine ourselves and that we might see in you the love that will not let us go? Do this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take that good, long, hard look in the mirror uh, today and, and really each of these Sundays as we look at Hosea. But it's just some, some lifting, some heavy lifting that needs to be done when you consider a, a prophet uh, writing in a different time and a different context. So this is the Sunday where I, I want to introduce the big picture. Um, some of you know the story. Some of you know it very well. Others of you may be hearing for the very first time the message of Hosea. So my challenge is to speak to all of you and today we want to make sure we get our categories. We set everything up with context and summary, which I think you'll see is going to lead us straight to the table uh, in an appropriate act of worship to enjoy together. So three simple points this morning. Hosea, the man, who he is. Hosea, his context. And then thirdly, Hosea, his ministry. And then after doing that, I think we'll be prepared to move uh, pretty much chapter by chapter through the rest of the book in the weeks ahead. So first, Hosea the man. 
Hosea, the name means salvation. He saves. And so Hosea is rightly named. The Lord would use him and has named him and is appropriate uh, to speak to the very thing that his name identifies. But what else do we know about Hosea? Not very much. In verse 1, we're told he's the son of Beeri. And commentators seem to agree that we just, we don't know much about Hosea, but we, we think we can say this. He's an ordinary guy. He's probably your typical blue-collar kind of guy. There's nothing extraordinary about him in and of himself. He is a typical middle-class, blue-collar Israelite, it seems. But there is something special about him, and that is that he is an instrument in the hand of God. He is in the office of a prophet. And remember, Deuteronomy 18 gives us a definition of what a prophet is. Uh, Prophets could foretell, and prophets would foretell. They would be the mouthpiece of the Lord to speak His word to His people. And so Hosea is a prophet. He's an 8th century minor prophet. And commentators love to make the joke, there's nothing minor about Hosea, right? Um, That language of minor prophet, major prophet, simply refers to the length of the book. And Hosea's 14 chapters, it's it's a smaller book. And so he's called a minor prophet. But there's nothing small, there's nothing minor about his ministry. It is a significant prophetic word. He has been raised up to speak to the people of God. Now, an illustration about the office of prophet. Sorry, but I typically use this, and maybe I've used it here before, but years ago, I sat in the dining hall at at Erskine College, and I was preparing to preach through the book of Hosea. And I was sitting in there for hours working, trying to think, how do I explain this 8th century prophet to college students? Um, How do I explain the office of a prophet? And as I sat working on that, on that occasion, I kept noticing something. About every 30 minutes, a little old lady shuffled out from the kitchen. Miss Lillian, for those who remember Miss Lillian. She shuffled out from the kitchen and she went to the hot food bar. And she came with this big long spoon. And I watched her and she would go and you know what she did? She would stir the hot food Because about after every 30 minutes, it starts to get this film over the top. It starts to harden a little bit. And she would come stir things up to keep it fresh. There's the office of a prophet. Lillian, the prophet, would come out and stir things up so that they didn't harden over in time. And that's what the Lord would use His prophets to do. They would come with a spoon... Maybe some of your mamas spanked you with a spoon. Prophets would come with a spoon, and the Lord would use them to stir the people, to stir the hearts. And often that was done with hard words, uncomfortable words, calls for self-examination, right? So there you have it. The office of a prophet is one who will stir a cold heart that is hardening. That is the purpose, and that is what Hosea is used to do. So Hosea is an ordinary man, but he's an instrument in the hands 
of a holy God. Paul David Tripp says this, Embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle we must not miss. Here it is. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. And so Hosea, ordinary guy, but in the hands of an extraordinary God, he can do extraordinary things. An ordinary Joe in an ordinary place. Now let me stop and make an application to that. You know, we're just a little small church in Greenwood, South Carolina. We're ordinary people. We're ordinary Joes. But those are the kinds of people that God says he uses in his kingdom. God does big things in little places through very ordinary people. And so as we consider Hosea and all of his being an ordinary person, let's remember to apply that to ourselves. God is going to use ordinary people to do his kingdom work in his world. Even in Greenwood, South Carolina, even in Due West, South Carolina, God, we expect God to do significant things through his people, through his church, because he always has. Secondly, Hosea, his context. Three key words here. Prosperity, apathy, and guilty. This is the context that he has been raised up in to do ministry. It is a prosperous context. It is a time of prosperity. Um, verse 1 tells us that this is during the reign of Jeroboam. We know that to be Jeroboam II. This was a time of national prosperity for Israel. As much as it was a prosperous time for them, really it was a time where the surrounding nations around them were weaker. Right? And so it was a good time for them. Um, but you know what happens when we're in the midst of a good time? Sometimes we become apathetic spiritually. And that is exactly what would happen with these people. Deuteronomy chapter 32 speaks of this. Listen. Jeshurun, or Israel, grew fat and wicked. Excuse me. Grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods, and they angered him with their detestable idols. And the imagery there is that Israel has gotten fat and happy. And when they got fat and happy, they didn't need the Lord anymore. And so they began in their apathy towards the Lord to start to admire the nations and the worship of other nations. And they became like other nations. And the Lord says, you were supposed to be my special people, my treasured possession. You were supposed to conform to me. And you've become wicked. You've kicked against me, he says. And we know this from our own experience. We get fat and happy. And that's when we tend to drift, right? So there's a warning here. If you're in a season of prosperity, sometimes that leads to apathy. And we are to be warned that prosperity can harden the heart. We all want to be prosperous, but the warning is prosperity can harden the heart. Listen to what William Wilberforce says about this. 
Prosperity hardens the heart. Prosperity and luxury gradually extinguish sympathy and puff us up with pride. They then harden and debase the soul. And you hear that language of the hardening of the heart, the need for a prophet to come and to stir things up. So in all their prosperity, Israel became characterized by apathy. They were enamored by the other nations, even by the worship of Baal. They wanted to start being like the nations rather than being the people of the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce says of this era, this context, it was an age of luxurious materialism, apparent religious devotion, busy activity and freedom, but the hearts of the people were in reality empty. Religious practice was shallow and corruption was rampant. So that's your context of the people. They maintain some perfunctory religious exercises, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Their hearts were hardened and cold towards God. And Hosea is the prophet raised up that God might start to soften the hardness of their hearts. And he does it, and you see it in verse 2, where he says, because these people are guilty of the vilest adultery or of unfaithfulness against the Lord. Now, I read from the NIV version earlier. You may read from other versions, but the language all means the same, but you feel the weight of it very differently. These are, these are terms that you'll read in other versions, depending on what you're reading. That the Lord called Hosea to take a promiscuous wife that the Lord called Hosea to marry a prostitute, that the Lord called Hosea to take a wife of whoredom. All of that is synonymous. And what it intends to communicate is that the people of God were guilty of the most hurtful, the most unholy unfaithfulness that could be imagined. And so I know that strong language, perhaps for, for some to hear, that imagery is very powerful, but it's for a reason. The Lord is calling them to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, to see their sin and all of its ugliness. And the Lord would use Hosea to bring that hard message about their unfaithfulness and the Lord's faithfulness that can overcome their unfaithfulness. You know, this morning when we were singing the opening hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? That's what that's saying. That's, that is the truth that we are echoing in that song. And you know what hymn we'll never sing in this church? Great is my faithfulness, right? Great is my faithfulness. No, the, the, the lesson of Hosea is God is faithful and that we are not. The people are guilty of the vilest adultery, Gross unfaithfulness. And you put these together, the prosperity, which can lead to apathy, which leads to being guilty of rebelling against the Lord. That is really the picture of how drift can occur in our lives. And so in the way of application, every one of us needs to be warned. If you're in a prosperous season, 
Discern yourself. Are you growing apathetic and indifferent? And if you're apathetic and indifferent, are you guilty of having a hard heart towards the Lord, towards His people, towards His worship? That tends to be the drift that threatens all of us, and it's what Hosea is warning the people of. And that leads us to our third point. Hosea, his ministry. Three things about his ministry that prepare us for the book. Number one, Hosea's ministry, he has, it can only be called a hard calling. Now some will say that um, this is all poetic and image and symbol and that Hosea did not really have to marry a promiscuous wife and live through the hurt and the pain personally in order to communicate his message. Well, you certainly could communicate that message and it just be symbol. Uh, But you know, the Lord often called his prophets to do very outrageous and very difficult things. And so I, I think the commentators who say, no, it's probably best to understand this, that he actually endured this and represented the Lord in it. I think that's probably the way that we should receive all of this. And in that hard calling, Hosea called to marry a wife of unfaithfulness. He was made a public spectacle for all to see. Everybody would have known who the prostitute in town is, and everybody would know that he identified as a prophet speaking for the Lord. And as one commentator suggested, his ministry probably was largely characterized by people talking behind his back and behind a closed hand about Hosea. Look at his wife, who he married. That's a hard calling. And his ministry was at least 30 years, it's believed. That's a long, hard calling. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 7, he seems to speak of himself when he says he's, he's considered by the people. The prophet is considered a fool. Probably all the more reason why this is a a literal, not just a symbolic story. So he has a hard calling. And he does it, and he does it faithfully to communicate the Lord's word over the course of many years to God's people. So a hard calling. And it's a hard calling also because he's called to say hard things. He has a harsh word for these people. This is the language of of what we call covenant indictment. Now, we hear a lot in the news about indictments and allegations and charges. Hosea is bringing an indictment against the people of God, the church. Now, I I want to encourage you to read Hosea in these weeks ahead, particularly if you've never read it. Um, I, I would encourage you to read the chapter before you come and hear a sermon on it. And you're going to hear that harsh language. You're going to be amazed by the poetry We think that we're so poetic and so educated. Be humbled by the prophet and and what he does. It's amazing. But there's a lot of hard, hard language of covenant indictment against the people. And you may be tempted when you read this to transfer it all upon America and our country. But I want you to remember, he's speaking to the church, to the covenant people. So when we read this and make applications, the right application of it is to ourselves. Not to the nation, but to the church. 
And it's the church that is guilty of the vilest adultery. God's covenant people, he says, are guilty of a vile adultery. He brings an indictment and a charge against them that sounds like this in Hosea 13. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. And when I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. And then they forgot me. There's the cycle. So I will be, here comes the indictment. I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel. Because you are against me. You are against your helper. So you feel the emotion of this and you should feel the horror of it. The covenant Lord of mercy is saying he's going to tear his people apart. He's going to rip them apart. That is the covenant curse. That is what God promised his people. If you want a long, challenging reading today, read Deuteronomy 28. The first half is the promise of blessing. But the whole second half is the promise of curse. If you don't remain faithful to the Lord in the covenant relationship we had. So we read this and there should be a real sense of horror when we identify with our sin, that we are unfaithful. And the Lord says, sin will be torn apart. That there is a costliness to sin. And that is Hosea's 30 years of ministry. Not real popular, not real fun to talk like that to people, to bring that message. But it wasn't the only message that he brought. He did have harsh words that we'll consider in the weeks ahead. But in the end, it's a tender ministry. It is a beautiful, tender word that he speaks to the people. And I'm going to close with this. And we're going to make that transition to the table. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife Gomer again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel. Even though the people have turned to other gods, and love to worship them. God has given us this story, and it has this ugly beginning. But the conclusion is the most beautiful conclusion to an ugly beginning that you could ever hope for. It is the story of what has been called God's relentless love. That when judgment is deserved, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the story of God's covenant love, His covenant faithfulness, a story of His tender ministry to a sinful people. And the best way to close and come to the table that sums that up in the form of song for today is to sing that hymn, 
that sums up that same message. It's the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And as we sing this hymn, we sing this frequently, and it's, it is a, a favorite hymn of mine, but it's the story of Hosea. It's the story of God's enduring, relentless love that when we deserve to be torn for our sins, the Lord Jesus was torn for us. The covenant curses were taken by Him that we would not be torn, but that we would have a table to come to, to celebrate. It's the theme of Hosea. It's the promise of Hosea. It is the love that will not let us go. It is such good news. But the goodness of the good news is found in the badness of the bad news. Let's pray and thank Him for the mercy we have in Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice over the good news of what you have done for an unfaithful bride. And Lord, we are that bride. And so Lord, we thank you for your mercy, your tender mercy. We thank you for your relentless, unending love that pursues that wayward bride. And so, Lord, as we sing this hymn, would you warm our hearts? If we have forgotten how tender your love is, if we've not understood how tender your love is, Lord, would you remind us that it is the love that will not let us go. And then as we come to the table, Lord, may you increase our faith and strengthen us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.